This is the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. I'm Glenn McDorman, and I am deeply saddened to say that Gene Wolfe passed away this week on April 14th, 2019. Before we start the show, a moment of silence. Thank you, Gene. Thank you for the stories and the magic. Thank you for challenging us to think about what it means to be human, to think about what we are for and who we want to be and how we should live. Thank you for the gorgeous descriptions of people and places, both real and imaginary. Thank you for going to Korea. Thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for the endless puzzles and mysteries and for greatly increasing all our vocabularies. Thank you, Gene. Thank you for everything. Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buda. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we're finishing VRT. We won't quite be done discussing it yet, as we'll have our discussion episode for this part and then a wrap-up episode of VRT. But before we get into any of this, we want to give you the second of our promised announcements from a few weeks ago. Brandon and I have started a new show. That's right. We've started another book club podcast called Elder Sign. It's a weird fiction podcast. So far, we've covered stories by Algernon Blackwood, M.R. James, and Edgar Allan Poe. And there's a lot more to stay tuned for with that podcast. We're really excited to do that. As you guys already know, weird fiction is the genre that Brandon and I write in. And we started both of these podcasting projects at the same time with the goal of becoming better writers. We wanted to do a weird fiction book club so that we could really dissect the classic successes and failures of the genre that we work in. And of course, we also wanted to study the heck out of a master world builder. And so we naturally turned to Gene Wolfe. And it's been a lot of fun to be working on these projects side by side. And we're really excited now to be sharing Elder Sign with the world. So if you're interested in all the references to Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard to Arthur Machen, uh, and even Poe that we've been finding here in the Fifth Head of Cerberus, please go check out Elder Sign. But for now, let's get back to VRT. Uh, Brandon, this was a, a, a big section, and it's our ultimate section. So I'm really curious about your reaction to this end of VRT. Well, I hate to be a tease, but I think much of my reaction is going to have to be incorporated into the wrap-up, because a lot of how I feel about this book is caught up in a very particular reading of it that I'm not sure we're going to get to in our discussion today, as we kind of just explore what's happening in this final section of the book. All that's to say, I absolutely love VRT. I think it's a fantastic novella, and I think it wraps up beautifully, if not a little tragically, though I think Wolf does sprinkle in a little hope at the very end. Yeah, I found myself also having a strangely optimistic reading of the ending of this text. We might be the only people with that reading, so we'll see what we can do to convince people of it when we get there. But before we do, we have a lot of text to cover, so let's just jump straight into the recap. This episode, we're going to get entries in both Dr. Marsh's St. Anne Journal and in VRT's Prison Diary. And we're also going to see the frame narrative come back in a big way, as you'd expect at the end of the story. We begin with the St. Anne Journal, the entry for April 15th. This is a short entry that explains that they've continued their journey after the incident with the ghoul bear. The ghoul bear is continuing to follow them, though Dr. Marsh did try to ambush it at the corpse of the mule shortly after they encountered it. But he was too late. The mule had already been consumed when he got there, and there were hundreds of footprints left by a number of species in the, the mud and the dirt around it, and some of those footprints may have been from human children. There is also now a tire tiger following them, which screams for an hour or two after midnight, and I absolutely love this name, tire tiger. I don't know if it means that it is made of or resembles rubber, or if it's that it tires you out as a way of hunting you or, you know, maybe something else entirely. But it's a, it's a brilliant name and it does not sound like something they want following after them. And of course, there are also no more signs of the girl whom Dr. Marsh believes visited the boy. I think the indication of the tracks that might have 
been left by human children is supposed to read to us at this point as evidence of the shadow children, at least. Uh, And that's fascinating. I also am interested in the incompetence of John Marsh as a hunter and camper who is leaving food out for these predators and and carrion eaters to stay on their scent. And it's at this point, um, I'm going to start pointing out in the, some of the sections, some of the some senses where Marsh is representing him out, himself as negative and where v, VRT is being represented more and more positively. For those who know the end of the story, that will be important uh, in one of the questions we ask, but I'm going to keep it quiet until we get to the event in the recap. The following entry is April 16th. There's a short entry followed by the transcript of a conversation with VRT. The entry lets us know that VRT has finally succeeded in taming the house cat who has been following them. The cat, however, is too shy to let Dr. Marsh come close. And we should know that shy is his word. But we remember that Dr. Marsh has shot at this cat. He's thrown rocks at this cat. So I'm not sure that shy is really the right word word choice here. The conversation that he transcribes begins with Dr. Marsh asking VRT if he thinks that the Anis would run away from them. VRT says that they are afraid, and then indicates through his silence that the thing they are afraid of is Dr. Marsh. And Dr. Marsh asks VRT if he knows that he he wouldn't shoot one of the free people, that anthropologists never harm the people they're studying. After all, VRT has read Miller's Introduction to Cultural Anthropology, and and this, by the way, is kind of a strange note here in, in the story. I had this book in undergrad. I had Miller's Introduction to Cultural Anthropology in my Introduction to Cultural Anthropology class. But when I looked at the publication data, it appears to have been written in 1979, well after the fifth head of Cerberus was written. My edition was you know, from the 90s. It was you know, the fifth edition or something like that. But as far as I can tell, the first edition postdates the fifth head of Cerberus. So either that publication date is mistaken, or the renowned anthropologist and professor here in Philadelphia at Temple University, Elmer Miller, is actually an invention of Gene Wolfe, who came out of this book into the real world, uh, straight from the island of Dr. Death and other stories. And I hope that's what really happened. Yeah, I think that's probably the most likely scenario, Glenn. There's just one or two notes I want to make in this section. We see once again, Dr. Marsh's praise of the boy's ability to do things with his hands that don't involve tools. He's He sees the boy catching fish very dexterously with his hands. And it's kind of a nice moment. I think, you know, one reading of that is we're watching them sort of bond as they get, as they spend more time together in the back of beyond, or at least as they're traveling to the back of beyond. And I think this conversation is kind of evidence of that. Because one thing that's happening in this conversation is, as we'll get to, Dr. Marsh kind of turning into a mentor figure of sorts for VRT. But the last thing I want to say here is that VRT is insistent that the free people are good. They are inherently good. And the one thing he says is they do not steal unless others have plenty. And we've seen his mother being accused of stealing in the past. And it's just these sorts of things that we should keep in mind as we continue to put the pieces together in the final section of this story. And VRT seems real careful and cautious of Dr. Marsh's feelings when Dr. Marsh asks him if he knows that anthropologists don't harm the people they're studying. VRT doesn't say anything to Dr. Marsh as if he doesn't want to hurt his feelings or he doesn't want to incriminate himself. And this silence prompts Dr. Marsh to plead with him to explain that just because he shoots game to eat, uh, that doesn't mean that he would ever shoot an abo. VRT responds to this finally with some disgust. He criticizes Dr. Marsh for wasting meat, for leaving it on the ground where ghoul bears and tire tigers can get it, instead of hanging it from a tree where the free people and the shadow children would be able to use it. He's being wasteful. So Dr. Marsh agrees to hang their discarded meat from now on, and VRT seems pretty placated by this. And now VRT wants to know if if Dr. Marsh thinks that he himself could ever become an anthropologist. Dr. Marsh believes that VRT is definitely intelligent enough for it, but he would have to do a lot of remedial educational work before he could even begin college, and this would include learning a foreign language. 
Dr. Marsh then remembers that VRT already has some French. And here, VRT quietly corrects him by saying, yes, I already know French, which is an understatement, right? French is his native language. English is his second language, which he also speaks fluently and can write and think in. I mean, he does it so fluently that Marsh has forgotten that it's not his first language. VRT recognizes that Dr. Marsh thinks of him as an uneducated beggar or bumpkin of sorts. And so he explains two interesting things to Dr. Marsh. The first is that while he appears to be around 17 years old, he can look older if he wants to. But he didn't want to change too much from what he looked like when Dr. Marsh first met him. The second thing he says is that although he speaks in an uneducated manner, he only does that because it's an act. It's a persona that he puts on to beg for money. In fact, he's already taught himself to imitate Dr. Marsh, and Marsh is really impressed by the demonstration of this. And VRT can also do a good impersonation of Dr. Hagsmith. In the thoroughly convincing voice and speech patterns of Dr. Hagsmith, VRT goes on to tell a story about an abo girl. The story begins, Once in the long dreaming days, when Trackwalker was shaman of the abos, there was a girl called Three Faces. She was an abo girl, and she used the colored clays found by the rivers, and, and we've encountered the red and the yellow clays already here in this story. Uh, she used these to paint a face on each of her breasts, and one of these faces says no, and the other says yes. Three Faces met a human cattle drover in the back of beyond who fell in love with her, and she fell in love with him, so she turned the yes breast to face him. They had sex out in the wilderness that night, and the cattle drover asked her to come live with him and keep his house and do all the things that human women do. But the next morning, she woke up and she washed herself in the river for forgetfulness, and now had only one face, her natural one. When the cattle drover tried to take her home, she wouldn't talk to him, and eventually she just ran away. There's more to this story, but I want to note right now that the river of forgetfulness, the river Lethe, is one of the rivers of the underworld in classical literature and in the Aeneid, which we know is, an, is important in this book. And Virgil writes that the spirits of the dead have to drink from this river so that they can forget who they used to be, at which point they will be sent back to the world as new people. It's a, a reincarnation of souls. This is the, the fundamental moment at which that process uh, is started. This story is fascinating for a number of reasons. Well, as we look at the levels of imitation that VRT is now saying he's capable of, he can act like his mother. He, he speaks the way he speaks because his father taught him and he's able to change the shape of his face in some small way by looking older. But this imitation of Dr. Hagsmith is just ultimately really funny. This is a funny story, and I'm glad we get it, though we'll see that Dr. Marsh reads it as a provocation of sorts uh, because Dr. Marsh is concerned that VRT is having sex with this young girl out in the back of beyond. We're also learning a little bit about VRT's storytelling ability, his adaptation of a voice, his interest in the folklore of the free people, of the abos, and the ability to tell a story, the ability to engage with a point of view like Dr. Hagsmith's, which is rooted in the belief that none of this is true. But there's one thing VRT says earlier in this interview. There's a point where Dr. Marsh is asking VRT about his age, and he thinks he's older than VRT claims he is, which is 16. Dr. Marsh says he would have said 17, and then asks if VRT is counting in Earth years. And VRT says, no, St. Anne years, they are longer here. To me, this is an answer to a question that is read at the beginning of a story, which is, by what perspective and in what way are the years longer than? And I think we're seeing the opening line of the story come out of VRT's mouth at this point. And I just, that's just my reading. So that's something people can engage with on the forum as well. And VRT doesn't need to tell Dr. Marsh this. Dr. Marsh knows precisely how much longer the St. Anne year is than an Earth year. It's 37 days. We were with him when he told us precisely that information. Uh, this is not news. It's interesting that VRT feels like he needs to keep reminding Dr. Marsh of that sort of information. But it is also true that Dr. Marsh has forgotten what VRT's native language even is. So there is a, a real level on which VRT is aware that Dr. Marsh is, is not paying attention 
to him. All right, so we, we actually still need to finish VRT's little folktale here that he's telling in the guise of Dr. Hagsmith. This cattle drover discovered that he now had the imprint of this Abo girl's breast faces on his own chest. And so when he returned to Frenchman's Landing, he had a tattoo artist trace over the images so that he would have them forever. And people say that when the cattle drover died, the undertaker skinned his chest and now keeps it preserved in his desk drawer in the mortuary. This is a pretty fun folktale, as you said, Brandon. It is meant to be humorous. And it is a a real folktale in the sense that it blends both the mundane and the fantastical. This seems in some ways to be taking place in the same world as a story by John V. Marsh. We get this invocation at the start of it about the long dreaming days when Trenchwalker was shaman, but then it verges immediately out of that mode of myth into the mode of folktale because we have the presence of humans and Frenchman's Landing, which we know is not even a very old settlement as human settlements on this planet go. So there is that blending of the now and the then of the fantastical and the mundane in this story. It's really artfully done. So good job, VRT. The next entry is the last that we'll get for a while, and it's from April 21st. So that's five days later. Dr. Marsh is mentally strained by having to stay up half the night to protect the mules from the ghoul bear and the tire tiger, and so now he is determined to kill at least one of these predators. What he's done is shoot a prance pony. Uh, This is a great Lord of the Rings reference here. And he's tethered it in a clearing while he sits in the fork of a tree with his heavy rifle. It's an ambush. Two hours later, he writes to say that nothing has happened yet. Neither of the predators have taken the bait. But while he's sitting up in this tree, he is certain, call it telepathy if you want, that VRT is with his mysterious lover again. Dr. Marsh knows that this girl is Annie's. He suspected it from the start, but he knows that VRT told him that folktale to rub his nose in it. He thinks that all he would have to do is tell her that he won't harm her, and then the expedition would be a success, and he would be famous. He then writes that he can almost hear them, and he thinks that he could climb down and catch them together, but if he saw them having sex, he thinks that he would shoot them both. So again, I have to say, this is utterly crazy. Uh, Something is really wrong with Dr. Marsh here. Right, it's absolutely bonkers. This level of certainty is absolutely absurd, and I mean absurd in the philosophical sense, and this is, you know, this type of absurdity is best illustrated, you know, at the end of The Big Lebowski, where... John Goodman's character says, this man can walk. I've never been more certain of anything in my entire (laughs) life, right? That's the level of certainty that Dr. Marsh has here. This phrase, I can almost hear them, just jumps out to me. It's an admission that you have no evidence, but you're reaching for it. You're somehow justifying by proving a negative. It's, It's fascinating. And I don't really know what to make of Dr. Marsh's madness at this point. We also have a note here that he notices the boy wasn't circumcised. And I'm not really sure why Dr. Marsh is taking note of this in his journal or what the interest is. But we might have an answer for it as we get deeper into this recap. Well, for now, we're going to switch to VRT's prison journal. And this, I think, is a pretty great cliffhanger ending because we are left wondering if Dr. Marsh actually does climb down from that tree and go kill VRT, uh, but perhaps wound up getting killed himself somehow. And this is how VRT has come to take his identity. Uh, But of course, we'll get more on that later. There is a new prisoner in the Citadel dungeon, and seeing him brought in has saved VRT from losing his mind. But for that, VRT does not thank him. Sanity, after all, is only reason applied to human affairs, And when this reason has resulted in disaster, destruction, despair, misery, starvation, and rot, then the mind is correct to abandon it. VRT writes that the decision to discard reason is not the last reasonable act, but the first. Insanity is nothing but responding naturally and instinctively, rather than with the culturally acquired, mannered thing called reason. An insane man talks nonsense because, like a bird or a cat, He is too sensible to talk sense, Uh, and I think this is something that we're going to unpack in the discussion, so I'll leave off commenting until we get there. Yeah, we'll we'll be digging into this a little bit, and 
both talking about it as maybe a critique of enlightenment or a push for radical freedom. But I think we're also going to try to connect it to the theme of madness that is tied into this story. So I think there's a lot to look forward to with this question in particular uh, about the state of VRT's mind and his philosophical musings. This new prisoner is a middle-aged fat man. He's a businessman of the kind who works for other businessmen. VRT saw him through his Judas window and then alternately showed his lips and his eyes to the new prisoner and shouted at him, What have you done? What have you done? And then laughed at him. But the laughing was also at himself because he realized that he could speak again, something he thought he couldn't do in the last entry we had. Moreover, VRT is certain that this prisoner has nothing to do with him, no connection to him in any way, and this makes him feel safe. The next entry recounts an interrogation, and we quickly realize that it is an interrogation we've already encountered through one of the audio recordings. Uh, It's the one in which VRT received cigarettes and Constant talked about the wonders of government on San Croix. Reflecting on that conversation, VRT now surmises that the maitre of the Maison du Chien is dead, and that his son, number five, is under arrest and perhaps even in prison somewhere else here in the Citadel. Moreover, he assumes that Aunt Janine will be trying to get number five released from prison, and it occurs to VRT that she may be trying to get him out, too. After all, she is an amateur anthropologist, and he is a renowned anthropologist from Earth, And this prompts him to think about Vale's hypothesis. If Vale's hypothesis is true, who then are the free people? Conservatives who wouldn't desert the old ways? He also writes that the the question is not how much the thoughts of the shadow children influence reality, but how much our own thoughts do. And at this, he writes that he has read Dr. Marsh's interview with Mrs. Blunt a hundred times while he was living in the hills, and he knows who he believes the free people to be. And he calls his hypothesis Leave's postpostulate. Uh, leave here being veil backwards. And again, this is something that we'll be digging into in the discussion. But we should note here that this indicates that VRT didn't invent that interview, which Constant had accused him of in the previous section. There's a few puns in this section I want to point out because, I don't know, we haven't done a wolf puneler in quite, in quite some time. Uh, the first one is the planetary face being described as quacodiles like san quacodiles it's didn't really land for me but i thought it was funny that it was in here and uh the the mention of leaves post postulate the last sentence in the century is vrt saying i am leave and i have left just a little just a little bit of fun there wolf is tossing in to a pretty heavy section that also digs into the role of number five's father in society Number five's father, I think we can infer, was also an interrogator who used drugs like he did on his son with prisoners to get answers. And part of the reason why VRT is in this predicament is because he was unable to convince number five not to kill his father, which is what he was there for. And the loss of that father made his interrogation go on much, much longer. Um, just a bit of really fascinating world building and reworking of the past in this section. And I appreciated that a lot. One other bit that is a reworking of Fifth Head is VRT's suspicion that Antonine only pretends not to believe Vale's hypothesis, but she really does. And I think it is crucial to know, and maybe it is the most crucial sentence in this whole story is VRT's recognition that it is not the thoughts of the shadow children that influence reality, but his own thoughts or our own, as he says, which is him recognizing perhaps that he's part of something larger than himself. That line is going to work with our discussion of sanity uh, when we get to it in the discussion. So I'm going to also hold off from diving in here Uh, any further than I have already. Next, we get a a very quick entry in which the new prisoner is beaten by the guards for talking. Uh, What matters here is that VRT warned him about this, right? He he tried just to help the guy. Uh, And with that said, I think we can get right into the next entry. 
VRT is ecstatic that he has been moved back to his original cell on the first floor, and now he has a mattress and a blanket and a window again. And also, Prisoner 47 is tapping to him again, and the prisoner in the cell next to his also tries to communicate with him. And I don't think that we have mentioned this prisoner in the cell next to him before, but this person has appeared in the narrative. This prisoner scrapes and taps at the wall, but doesn't know the code that the rest of the prisoners are using, so VRT has never engaged with this person. But here, VRT writes that the sounds are so various that he thinks that this other prisoner might be trying to talk with noises. And this is similar to something that Dr. Marsh said that primitive people do with drums. Now that he's back on the first floor, VRT is given a good meal. And the next day, he's even taken to bathe and to be disinfected. And so now he wonders if he's about to be released. And of course, this is exactly what happened to number five when he was, in fact, being released. But it turns out that he is only being cleaned up for a new interrogator, an important young man named Mr. Jabez, uh, which is an interesting biblical name from First Chronicles, but I, I'm not really sure what to do with this reference. Did you think of anything with this, Brandon? Yeah, so the name in Hebrew means distress or pain. And this is a really brief passage in, in First Chronicles. It's uh, chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. This was This was turned into a bit of a fad in Christianity in the 2000s with something called the the prayer of Jabez, where Jabez prays that God would increase his land and keep him from doing harm or evil, basically. And all it says is like, God grants that to him. Um, And I think this became a foundation of sort of the health and wealth gospel in some senses in the 2000s, helped really get the ball rolling, ask God for big things. I think what Wolf is doing here is in referencing this name, one, it's an interrogator whose name means distress and pain. That's a really bad sign. But also the end of that prayer is really about asking God to keep you from doing harm or evil. And I wonder if that is what stuck out to Wolf uh, in, in using this name as a reference. And what and I should just say, to, to clarify, if it wasn't clear, that Jabez is there to keep VRT from doing any additional harm or evil, though he has not been found out for his crime. Um, He has committed a crime. And he is, in some senses, a 'er ne'er-do-well. I don't know if he's really capable of doing good in a society, even an evil society. The conversation between Mr. Jabez and VRT indicates to us that we've seen it before, all the way back at the beginning of this novella. It's the very first audio recording that we had. But what matters here is that VRT realizes now that there might actually be some danger in writing about himself as VRT in this diary. And even in this very paragraph, he starts to put the persona of Dr. Marsh back on. He writes... I let my imagination range pretty freely about my life with my parents on Earth, and it would only confuse my case. To tell the truth, I was thinking of doing a novel. A great many books have been written in prison. And then VRT determines to destroy his journal pages at the first opportunity. This line, of course, a great many books have been written in prison, basically shows up intact in a story by John V. Marsh. That'll be important in our wrap-up episode. And since what we're actually reading here are clerical copies of these diary pages, we know that he didn't burn all of them, and he certainly did not burn enough of them, if he ever gets to burn any of them at all. Later that night, VRT is awoken by a guard in much the same way that number five used to be awakened to visit his father. VRT is not taken to be drugged and questioned, but is taken to something akin to a cheap motel room to meet with Celestine Etienne. She expresses concern for him, though she, of course, is still thinking of him as Dr. Marsh. She explains that she was prevented from seeing him by being told to visit the Bureau of Licenses whenever she might have had the opportunity to come to the Citadel to visit Dr. Marsh. But finally, she went there and was sent to the Citadel, Uh, though on the way, she stopped back home and put on nicer clothes and some perfume. 
Those nicer clothes are a pink dress, and we have seen a woman with a pink dress before. Uh, speaking with Maitre in the basement of the Maison du Chien, all the way back in the first novella, and Wolf scholar Robert Borsky equates that woman in pink with this woman here, with Celestine Etienne, uh, and we'll get some more about that at the end of the book today. Well, now we come to the final entry in the prison diary. We are starting to wrap this story up here. VRT writes that he's about to start burning the pages of his journal. Then we get the frame narrative here to explain that the transcription of the journal comes to an end with a notation giving the place, time, and date on which the originals were confiscated from VRT. So we are left wondering how much, if anything, he was able to burn. And now that the prison diary is finished, uh, we return to the St. Anne Journal. Dr. Marsh writes that we must excuse his suddenly poor handwriting because an absurd accident has happened, and we'll find out what that is later. For now, what matters is that he has killed both the tire tiger and the ghoul bear. The tire tiger sprang at him when he climbed down from the tree, and he was lucky that all he got were a few scratches from the thorns of the tree when the tire tiger knocked him down. At this point, we get another intrusion of the frame narrative. The officer sets down the journal and picks up VRT's school composition notebook, which we haven't seen since the very beginning of this story. The officer glances at the first few pages, nods to himself, and then picks up the St. Anne journal again, and it's clear that what he's doing is comparing the handwriting. Right. At this point, it's explicit that this is VRT now. VRT has explicitly taken the place of Dr. Marsh in St. Anne. The real question is only how long has he been Dr. Marsh? VRT asks that we excuse some of the subsequent entries in the diary as well. And we have no idea how many entries are contaminated in Dr. Marsh's CNN diary. Somewhere between Mrs. Blunt and April April 22nd or April 23rd. Um, so at this point, it's safe to say that this is a question which we will be digging into in our epi- uh, next episode. Next entry is April 23rd, and now we're going to find out what has happened to Dr. Marsh's hand. Uh, he came back to camp after shooting the tire tiger, and he, he says that he described this above, and maybe he did, but we haven't been shown that part of the entry, which will, I think, be important in our discussion about what is it that's happened here. Dr. Marsh was really excited about his encounter with the tire tiger, and Uh, When he got back to camp, he picked up the cat to show VRT where on the tiger his shots had hit it. Uh, Of course, no cat is going to enjoy this, but especially not from someone who has tried to harm it before. And so this cat bites Dr. Marsh's hand. I I have to say two things here. One, the importance of the place that this cat has taken in the camp and what's going on here is really tied to the opening to the epigram by Tropic, which we read in our first episode. And I encourage our listeners to go and reread that entry um, because something is going on here with the cat, but also the way it bites the hand here. This is the final scene of a story by John V. Marsh. This is where the shadow child bites both of the brothers and they become the same person. Surely this must have some symbolic importance here in this story as well. And there are some readings of this story in which that is not merely symbolic. And uh, that's something that we'll talk about in our wrap-up episode. Now it is April 24th. Dr. Marsh's handwriting is still bad. And he writes that he doesn't know what he would do without the help of VRT, who has done most of the work on the entire trip. And this, I do think, is a, a difference in tone from previous entries. The two of them have decided that they shouldn't resume their journal until Dr. Marsh's hand is healed. Uh, Besides, this is a great spot. There's a tree, which is always lucky, and the river water is sweet and cold. There's plenty of meat, and indeed, they are now eating the prance pony and have hung a haunch of it from another tree for those who hunger. So Dr. Marsh also now has some new empathy for the plight of the animals and the abos who live out here. First, I'm really glad you brought up earlier that Prance Pony is a Tolkien reference because there's another clear Tolkien reference, I think, at the end of this novella as well. The tone is so different in on April 24th here um, that 
if it wasn't clear at the officer's intrusion in the frame story that they had switched places, that VRT has become Marsh, there's no way you could read this tonal shift and not be like, okay, this is not the same person writing what we've been reading before. I do want to point out this phrase for those who hunger. This is from the Beatitudes. This is not merely like a nod towards Dr. Marsh's newfound sympathy. This is the same thing we saw happen before with Trenchard, where the spiritual element of the biblical phrasing is stripped away, and all that's left is the material. And it's the same exact thing that is happening here when they're leaving meat on the tree for those who hunger. So I think that's just important to keep in mind. As we're looking at the Trenchard's engagement of the world as purely material. The next entry is very short. It it is April 25th, and Dr. Marsh's hand hasn't gotten any worse, so they have now broken camp. VRT has been reading Dr. Marsh's books, and he's even asked him some really intelligent questions that even he himself, with the PhD in this subject, cannot answer. And I think we can zip right along now to April 26th, which begins with an ominous line. The boy is dead. I have buried him where he will never be found, because I find, looking at the dead face, that I do not believe in strangers looking into graves. And then we get a description of what happened. They arrived at the southern rim of the gorge, and VRT decided to climb down the rock walls to look for caves, even though Dr. Marsh reminded him that VRT himself had said they were still too far downstream to find the sacred cave of the free people. And he does write free people here, not abos or annies, as Dr. Marsh has always done in the past. And this decision to climb down the rock wall proves perilous. VRT falls 200 meters into the river. And Dr. Marsh rushes downstream and finds that a big tree stood grasping the rock with water at his feet and had thrust out a root to catch my friend. And this language is obviously important, but what comes next is perhaps even more so. Dr. Marsh writes, Let me confess now that I lied. And it turns out that the entry for April 25th and this one on April 26th were not written on those dates. It is now the 1st of June. Dr. Marsh was so distraught at VRT's death that he couldn't keep the journal anymore, but he has decided now that he should continue it, and at first he thought to make up the five weeks of entries, but now he has thought better of fabricating all of that. Moreover, although his hand has healed, it still doesn't work quite right, and his handwriting remains suspiciously terrible. And here, really, right, we have to say, this is VRT. I mean, we said it a few entries ago, but I, I, there's no way that anyone could possibly still be on the fence about that at this moment. And we don't know what happened to Dr. Marsh, but he is gone, and it is VRT who is writing these entries as if he is Dr. Marsh. So pseudo-Dr. Marsh uh, tells us that he hid VRT's body in a cave and then killed the cat and laid it at his feet. He then reflects that he is unused to writing like this, to recording his own thoughts. Of course, he's very definitely the same person who wrote down all the interviews about his trip and about the visit to the sacred places. Uh, He's written that stuff before, but he's never written down his private thoughts. That's what he's not used to writing. Now that Dr. Marsh is gone, VRT and the mules travel much more slowly. Uh, There is always something to stop for in these hills, after all. A beautiful spot with shady trees, or a place to look for the cave, or just a deep hole with fish in it. VRT hasn't killed any large animals, and now only eats fish and some small creatures that he's able to catch with snares. Several times, in fact, these snares have been robbed, but he's not angry about it because he believes that he knows who steals. It's the free people he's looking for. Uh, There's a bit here that we don't need to spend too much time on, but he speculates about the types of things that the abos of the marsh regions would eat, and this seems to be the beginning, the the genesis of what will become a story, though we'll get to that in uh, in a few episodes. The scene here with the dead body in in the cave and the animal at its feet is also a very important point in the journey of Sandwalker in a story by John V. Marsh. The cat is what is killed here and laid at the feet of Dr. Marsh in a VRT in the cave in this section. 
We also learned that VRT is a, a very good forager. One thing I want to point out here is the line about his ability to forage and find plants and shoots and worms to eat in the wild. He says, there's a fungus that grows only where no light comes. That is very good. Um, that imagery is too hard for me to, to resist, both in terms of the shadow children's habits. They're only coming out at night and, and them being addicted to a kind of mind-expanding drug in some way. That's going to come up in the discussion. But I also want to point out here that this lack of light, this no light and the phrase very good are also really an inversion of Genesis as well, of the Genesis creation story, where God creates something and says that it's very good. I think that Wolf is doing something here that we've seen him use biblical language in the past that's an inversion of the actual meaning. And the same thing is taking place here. This fungus is not very good and may be the cause of VRT's mental state, as it turns out. And even though we have a few more entries in the St. Anne Journal, we really see the author of these entries, VRT, shedding the concerns that Dr. Marsh has and even shedding Dr. Marsh's lifestyle out here in the back of beyond. VRT writes about building fires. Uh, He's continued to do this out of habit, but now he's wondering why. Without a fire, he won't be able to write until Sister World is above the hills. And this use of Sister World here is a masterful way for Wolf to show us that this is VRT rather than Dr. Marsh. And what's more, he goes on to write that no one is going to read this, so he may as well put in all his innermost thoughts. But then he remembers that he's supposed to be keeping a scientific notebook, and that even if no one reads it, it will be good practice. He doesn't say practice for what, but... He clearly means practice at being Dr. Marsh, or at least practice at being an anthropologist. Now VRT really lets himself muse about the abos. We get here a lot of items that will show up in a story. There's uh, the first use of hill people and marshmen. He speculates about human sacrifices and cannibalism and how large a group of hill people there could be in this environment. This section concludes with VRT wondering how long the abos have lived like this, and he writes... How long was human prehistory on Mother Earth? A million years? Some would say 10 million. Uh, And I find these figures interesting because they are all wrong. Uh, And I'm looking forward to getting into that in the discussion. VRT sees San in the night sky and he he looks up at Port Mimizan. And this description is just great. So I'm just going to read it. I can see the hand reaching out into the sea and what must be Port Mimizan, a tiny spark where the thumb joins the palm. I have heard it called the worst city on either world. And I, w- I want to say two things about this. First, a great listener and forum contributor has pointed out that Port Mimizan seems to be a reference to the novel A Fish Dinner in Mimizan by E.R. Edison, who wrote the famous weird fiction novel, The Worm Ouroboros. And I thought that that was an awesome catch. And so I wanted to share it with people who aren't uh, following the conversations on the forum. The second thing is that although we've heard about the peninsula called the hand before, this description makes it sound like Michigan, which I just hadn't envisioned before. Uh, And there is a town at this spot on the hand that is the state of Michigan, uh, and the city is called Bay City. Uh, This happens to be where Madonna is from, so I'm now positing that Madonna is also a clone of Gene Wolfe. Again, very likely, very, very shrewd (laughs) observation. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that's excellent. I I think that could be the case. I just love that this is explicit now. The Port Mimizan is the worst city on either world. I think that's probably true. Yeah, I still want to check out that library, though. It might be the best library on either world. Maybe in the whole galaxy. We're still on June 4th, but there's an entry here about the cat that is pretty heartbreaking. VRT writes that he thought he saw his cat flying like a shadow in the dark, and he wondered if she were really dead, even though he had broken her neck himself. He tells us that the day before he found the burial cave for Dr. Marsh, the cat had brought him a little animal as a gift, as cats do. He told her that she was a good cat, and that she could eat it herself, but she only said, My master, the Marquis of Carabas, sends you greetings and then disappeared again. And this is straight from Puss in Boots, which is a, a French folktale, uh, the earliest written version of which is that by Charles Perrault around the year 1700. 
And the explicit connection here is that Puss in Boots is about a talking cat who's very helpful to his master. But the story itself is about how a poor man with nothing to his name except this cat is able to convince the French king that, in fact, he is a great nobleman. Uh, And in the end, he gets to marry the princess of France and becomes the very thing that he was pretending to be only through the, the sheer force of how good his pretending actually was. Which is to say that it's the exact plot of Vale's hypothesis. Right, exactly. This is this is such a great reference here for a number of reasons. One, we actually don't know the state of VRT's mind if he's remembering something that he believes to have happened and his mind is just getting addled and he's confusing these French folktales that he probably grew up with with reality. He's killed his own cat uh, who was maybe his only friend his mentor has been killed maybe even at his own hand and now he's retreating completely into fantasy again this just speaks to the importance of the cat here and i think we're gonna have a section of the about the cat in the wrap-up episode because this mention of the marquis de carabas is referring to somebody who does not exist as you said but who the power of the cat's guile is able to kind of spin out an existence out of whole cloth that it's a master that can then step into. But there's also a poem uh, that was written in the, in the 19th century by Robert Barnabas Brow, which is called the Marquis de Carabas, which is just about a, a vile aristocrat. It's, it's almost a response to the story about the corruption of power and wealth that it could have on the poor person whose only aspirations is to become noble. And it plays with these ideas of nobility and aristocracy that were breaking down in the 19th century. And I think Wolf is using this reference in two ways, both as the kind of folkloric power of cats, which is a great theme, the animal helper, but also in the as like a a warning, maybe a warning bell is going off in VRT's head as he's being warned about the nature of the imitation that he is participating in. And this speaks to the underlying political ideology that is reinforced here in Puss in Boots about what types of aspirations the lower class should have, which is not to overthrow the power structures that have made them have an unequal share of the common wealth, but that they should use all the abilities that they have to simply get to the higher level where they're where they now can become the oppressor. So we'll be bringing this up again when we talk about the theme of power structures in this story when we do our wrap-up episode. Uh, There's something else to say about Puss in Boots, which is that every story in this collection by Perot uh, has a a moral lesson at the end of it, a a little poem that explains what we were supposed to learn. Uh, Puss in Boots has two of them. The first is that although it's nice to inherit wealth from your father, a young man will find that sharp wits are worth more than any inheritance. And this seems to be what VRT is trying to do by using his own skills and talents to become Dr. Marsh. And it might also be the story of David, if we ever actually get to catch up with him. The second of these morals is that it's also really helpful to be good-looking, charming, and to have nice clothes if you're trying to woo a princess. And I suppose that is good advice. Yeah, that's always going to be the truth. (laughs) Well, there's one more curious item in this entry. VRT writes that he has been looking among the rocks for aeoliths, uh, that's flint tools of the type that he and his father make to sell to tourists and to the museums. He doesn't find any, but... I'm curious about why he's even looking for them if, by his own admission, the free people didn't use such things but relied on nets. I think we're going to have a lot to talk about on the question of sanity when we get there in the discussion. All right. Well, we now are at the last entry in the St. Anne Journal. It's June 7th. VRT and the mules are deep in the hills. They're approaching the mountains. Ahead of them, a small stone tumbles down the slope, and VRT knows that it must have been dislodged by some unseen animal. But part of him hopes that this means that the free people are watching him. And we we also get a note here that he is now completely naked, except for his shoes, which is only wearing because of all the stones. 
This is also Puss in Boots costume. His boots only. I mean, maybe it wears a little suit or something. Yeah, I think he's got a cape. But the, right, this is this is the kind of image that Wolf is playing with here. I think um, that's tying VRT to this image of of Puss in Boots. One thing I do want to note here is the ambiguous use of we, our, and us that are in the final entries here. Wolf switches the pronoun to the plural um, and it's not clear why it could be that vrt is now including the animals among his companions and thinks of them as equals but i think i have another reading that i'm going to propose and we could talk about it in the discussion episode but i wonder if the fungus isn't somehow getting him to think like a shadow child that he now is believing that he is traveling with multiple versions of himself in some way. I think that's a very interesting question. We should note that the first time he does use that plural, he does explicitly mean the mules. He says, we, the two mules and I, move much more slowly than when he was alive. But he stops making that clear, and there are places where it is confusing what he means or who is being included in that we uh, it will be interesting to to break that down right it's i think the actions that he is uh particularly on june 6th um, ascribing to the animals it's the it's it's more anthropomorphic it's we have behaved like explorers today marched all day and it's that sentence to me that is really a difference in tone than um just talking about the fact that his animals are with him. Right. And of course, we've seen him doing this type of thing in the, the prison diary, which postdates all of this by years. So some, something is confused for him, for sure. This entry for June 7th, and really the, the whole St. Anne Journal, ends with the account of a dream that he's just woken from. And I'm just going to read it because this is the last lines. I dreamed that naked people were crowding all around me as I slept. Children, twisted shadow children that are neither children nor men, and a tall girl with long, straight hair that hung almost in my face when she bent over me. And that's it. That's the St. Anne Journal. So we are done hearing from VRT, and we are done hearing from Dr. Marsh, and now we have left only to wrap up the story of the officer who's been reading all of this along with us. The officer tosses aside the journal and realizes that it is now dawn. He's been up all night reading and listening. Now he reads again the cover letter that had accompanied the file, dated nearly a year ago. And and we've seen this before, but then the officer had only skimmed it. And so we were only given a few words of it, but now we get it in its entirety. The question is whether Prisoner 143 is indeed the person that his passport says he is. This passport, which may have been tampered with, identifies him as John V. Marsh, Ph.D., a citizen of Earth, he was arrested in connection with the murder of a GSPB class AA correspondent espion in Port Mimizan. And this is a very cool way of letting us know that Major was working for the secret police in some small capacity. Uh, you said earlier, Brandon, that you think he was working as an interrogator of some sort. That's probably true. Presumably, he was also passing along anything that his sex slaves might learn from his clients, who, of course, are all the elite of the city and probably sometimes elite from other places who are visiting. And we already mentioned earlier that Borsky equated the woman with pink with Celestine Etienne, and that works out here to mean that Celestine Etienne was uh, Maitre's handler. And we are about to learn that she, too, is a part of the secret police. But we also learn here that they know that Dr. Marsh didn't commit that murder. They've already convicted number five of that crime. But the writer of this letter believes that Dr. Marsh is an agent of St. Anne. But because he might actually be from Earth, this case is clearly above his pay grade. Uh, moreover, there is a certain amount of pressure from the university for his release. In the Citadel, they have tried to break him by using the technique of alternating between harsh and lenient treatment. They have Prisoner 47 talking to him to get him to slip or to admit something, but that hasn't worked so far. And there is a prisoner in an adjacent cell, an illiterate woman who is a habitual petty thief, and she appears to be trying to communicate with Dr. Marsh, but the pattern is unintelligible, and he doesn't reply. Uh, and Robert Borsky has also surmised that this prisoner is, in fact, VRT's mother. 
Yeah, I think that's I think that's my reading as well. For me, it's more of a question, but that is, I think, the one thread sort of left dangling as as we're reading the story as sort of a hero's journey of VRT, though it's scrambled. This is the one thread that has no wrapping up unless you read this woman as VRT, and somehow she knows that it's him in the prison cell next to her. I don't know how much evidence there is for that, but it was my it was my reading too that that was the case. It's tragic irony that he has actually accomplished his goal; that he has in fact located his his mother and is in some way living with her again, but he doesn't know it. And I think the explanation for how she would know that is pretty easy. We have already encountered here in, in uh, this episode that that VRT can look out into the hallway and see a prisoner walking by, and I'm sure that she can do the same thing. And of course, a mother always recognizes her son, even when that son is pretending to be Dr. Marsh. Right. And I'm sure the eyes would be a dead giveaway. Well, as the officer finishes reading this letter, the prostitute Casilla comes in with a pot of coffee. He inquires about the next ship sailing to poor Mimizan. Uh, he's told that the Even Star is the next ship departing, but because it will take a long route to get there, the next ship that will reach Port Mimizan is the Slough Desmond. Uh, and these names are fantastic. Even Star is another interesting allusion to the Lord of the Rings. It's the second we've had in this episode. Arwen, who is the daughter of Elrond and the lover and then later wife of Aragorn, is sometimes called Even Star. And the parallel here is that Arwen is half-elf, half-human, and she has to choose whether she wants to be an elf or wants to be a human. And ultimately, she chooses to be a human because of her love for Aragorn. Uh, And we should remind people also that we had seen the description of the sailing ships on San Croix as being an allusion to Tolkien's elf ships. Uh, Those are the elf ships that carry the elves to their elven immortality that Arwen forsakes when she makes this choice to become a human. There's also another definition of the word or another approach to looking at even star, which is as the evening star, which is Venus. Um, And we'll be talking about the imagery there associated with the final lines of this novel to see maybe if these are beacons of hope in this world. Well, and Slough Desmond is certainly not. Slough Desmond seems to be an allusion to the the Slough of Despond, which is the Swamp of Despair in Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, It's also the source of the Swamp of Sadness in the never-ending story. And and this is fun because Slough means swamp, just as Marsh, as in Dr. Marsh, does, and just as Mir does, and just as Lafange does, right? We've been getting words for swamp everywhere in this story, including the name of this ship. The officer now writes back to the director of the prison in Port Mimizan. He says that the prisoner cannot be publicly executed because this would either give fuel to dissidents or damage the credibility of the government. Uh, The only real concern is the university, and that's not enough of a concern to take this risk. And so the only thing to do then is to keep trying to get prisoner 143 to cooperate, to keep trying to break him. The officer then directs his slave to send this letter via the Evenstar, the ship that is leaving first, but arriving last. The officer will not be able to attend the dinner that the general is hosting that night, but the officer wants the slave to put in a good word for him, to let the general know how hard he worked on this, and that he put his ruling on the first ship bound for Port Mimizan. The slave smiles at this, because he understands that this is part of some intrigue that the officer is up to. And we've come now to the final sentence of this book, and I think we need to read it just as we read the very first, uh, almost a year ago now. When he had gone, the officer found a spool of tape where it had rolled behind the lamp on his table. He dropped it out the window into one of the neglected flower beds among the sprawling angel's trumpets. And that's the end of the book. So I just have two things I want to say here. One, I love this reversal with the relationship between the officer and the slave. It's almost as though the slave has more clout than the officer because he is the slave of a higher ranking official. And the officer totally changes his behavior towards the slave as he ends his duty because he wants his word. He wants word of his success to travel well. And I just love how Wolf is putting in this real power dynamic right here at the end of the story. And the second thing I want to point out here is just the the proximity of even star to Angel's Trumpets. Angel's Trumpets is, of course, a real vine. This is a real type of flower. 
But to end a story with uh, the imagery of these flowers, I- I'm not sure how strong it is. I'm-, I'm reading the angels' trumpets here as the seven trumpets that the angels sound after the breaking of the seals in the book of Revelation, the final of which is God's divine judgment and the instantiation of the new kingdom, the new heaven and the new earth. So that's another reason for hope. But I think we're going to dig into that in our discussion. And so we'll save our talk of it for that. So that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brendan Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. We'd love for you to join us on the forum and let us know the different ways that you read some of what we covered today. There's certainly a lot of room for interpretation. So I'd really love to hear your thoughts. Also, don't forget to check out Elder Sign, our new weird fiction podcast. Next time, we'll be back with a discussion of this last section of VRT. Until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>